Alright, we are back in the book of Malachi. Um, finishing up, hopefully, tonight. We'll see, we're, we have two chapters. So it's a little bit quicker than we've been going. <clears throat> but these two chapters to finish up uh, Malachi. And then remember that we still have uh, Joel and Obadiah. Those are the last two in order to finish up our study of the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve. Then we'll do a quick overview, maybe probably two weeks or so, just an overview of the original question that kind of sparked the reason that we've been going through the Minor Prophets was the question of the uh, Apocrypha, what it is, how we should think about it. So we'll do a quick overview of that um, just to familiarize ourselves a little bit with what it is and, and maybe how we should think about it as, as believers. So, uh, But tonight, finishing up Malachi, the further that we've gone in this book, um, the more I'm, real, I'm drawn to it, it, it's unique, and uh, the, the, just the manner of communication is very different than the prophets. And as you know, it can be easy to get a bit wearied in the prophets with so many of the themes being the same um, and a bit heavy and reiterative. So this book has been, it's been quite refreshing. And I'm actually, with the, with the depth to which we're going in this sort of a series, this is one, Malachi is one that sort of grabbed my attention. I was like, I want to go through that one again. Like there's, there's a lot of, of really beautiful things here. Um, so the, the style uh, has been this disputation literature where the, the speaker makes his statement and then on behalf of the people does a quick rebuttal question and then prevent, uh, presents evidence toward his initial claim. So we have uh, three of those that we're going to look at tonight starting just at the end of chapter 2, leading into chapter 3, so 2.17. Um, the, previous, the, the content of the previous one uh, has been, uh, the first one was God's love. God's claim that he continues to love Israel. They say, how have you done that? And he gave the example of Jacob and Esau, um, which we looked again at this past Sunday. So the favor toward Jacob that God, that God showed and that Esau and Edom that came out of Esau uh, was fallen and, and God opposed. Then he moved into a long disputation about now that, now that they've been established as a covenant community after the exile, there's this anticipation that it would have been a whole community this time. And as we see close coming to a close, the end of the Old Testament, it wasn't whole. It wasn't, there was not shalom. It was not a place uh, that the, you know, the, ki the kingdom was beautifully established. In fact, there was a lot of brokenness. And he talks here um, about the priestly system and the corruption there, their malpractice. And then, as we looked at last week, the malpractice of the people as well in chapter 2. Their intermarriage uh, with people who are not of the covenant and how that drew their hearts away from God toward idolatry and even abandonment and divorce of their covenant wives. So now that brings us to the end of chapter 2, verse 17, and into chapter 3. So we'll take this one disputation at a time. This one goes from the end of chapter 2 into really the middle of verse 7 in chapter 3. So we'll start 217. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien 
because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. We'll pause there. So the next one begins with a call uh, to return. Okay, so this, uh, this disputation and the ones that follow as well revolve around primarily the words of the people, how they're speaking and what they're, um, what they're saying. The middle one, not so strongly, but the first and second ones, we have sort of long, not long, but extended evidence against them in what they're saying against God. So here, God is saying that he's wearied with their words, wearied with all the things spewing from their impure mouths. They say, what is it? How have we wearied you? And here's the accusation that they have reversed the intention of the worship system. That they do, like God would say, if you will worship me, then you will call what I call evil, evil. And you will call what I call good, good. And here they've done the opposite. They're, they've used the post-exilic time frame as a test case against God's justice system. Because they say, well, if you're such a God of justice, then when unjust things happen, where's the judge? Why haven't you corrected it? Why do you let wicked people walk freely? Uh, this is the classic problem that people who are holding God to his word too quickly encounter. We saw this very strongly in Peter that, uh, you know, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, where is, if there's, such, if there's so much justice, where's the God of justice? And they're unwilling to wait, unwilling to understand that God works in time differently than we do. So that's their uh, conclusion. We're going to call evil good in God's sight and even say, because the God of justice hasn't showed up, he must love evil. He must delight in it. It's his pleasure. So uh, they have misrepresented God to the community, uh, in the community, and to the world outside. And as we know from chapter one, from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, even to its going down, the name of God will be great among the Gentiles. And this is inconsistent with that. So he comes to them with that accusation. And then in chapter 3, God really begins making a lot of declarations about his response, how he's going to handle uh, all of the false worship, all of these, um, these words against his justice, against his character that are contrary to what he's revealed to them. And uh, so there's the coming that's announced of both a messenger and then Yahweh himself. And that's the beginning of chapter three is the announcement of those two characters. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he's going to prepare the way. He's paving the way for Yahweh himself. And the Lord whom you seek, where is this God of justice? Oh, he's coming, right? But the Lord whom you seek, the one you're asking about, he will suddenly come to his temple and that should sort of bring us back to uh, what was right before Zechariah, um, Haggai, right? To Haggai where he promised the, the glory of the second temple, that it was going to be great. And he says, he is going to show up at that temple. So he says, he's going to arrive. He'll come into his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant or the, in this case, the enforcer of the covenant. So God himself will arrive. This one that you say you can't wait to see. The one you delight in. The one you're looking for and anticipating. And this sounds like some of the earlier prophets that were talking about the day of the Lord. And everyone's excited for the day of the Lord because he's finally going to bring wrath on evil. He says, you don't understand. You are evil. You shouldn't be so excited. And that same, like a, a similar pattern happens here. He says, you're so excited for the Lord to come to the temple. You want it to be so glorious. You want justice. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But should you be so excited? Verse two, here's this, the effect of the arrival of the enforcer of the covenant. Who can endure the day of his coming. 
You think you can? You think, you think the way that you are conducting yourselves in worship, you think that's, he's going to be excited about that? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? A little reminiscent of Job, right? When God calls him and says, stand up. <laughs> God's arrived. Now let's have a conversation man to man, divine to human. And he says, who's going to be able to stand before the enforcer of the covenant? And we see in the, through the rest of chapter or verse two into three and four, the effect of the coming of the Messiah is purification. That was the problem in chapter one and two, right? Impure worship. So when he arrives, he says he's going to purify. He's a refining fire, a variety of metaphors throughout here. Refining fire, a launderer's soap. Um, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He'll purify. Here's the leadership call. Once again, you remember Levi in chapter one and two. Uh, The people were not living like Levi. So he's going to purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver. The purpose of doing all of this is so that, once again, there will be a pure offering, a righteous worship. So that second half of verse 3 is critical in unveiling the purpose of the return, is that he's going to accomplish and establish true worship once again. So, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then, after he arrives and refines... The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. You just feel that sigh. Like, it will happen as in the days of old, as in former years. That calls us back again to middle of chapter 2. Like Levi, when he said, Levi, there, there was, uh, you know, God had given his covenant to him and he, that he would fear before him. And Levi did fear before him. He was reverent. The law of truth, truth was in his mouth. There was injustice prevented and the people followed. He says, like that, but better because it's the true covenant enforcer. It's not only purification, or how is it that purification occurs? (laughs) Well, verse 5 shows us the target. Who is the Messiah going after? Who should be scared um, that verse 1 is true, that the messenger of the covenant is coming? Sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, those against, or, and against those who turn away an alien. Summary statement or cause of all of these activities statement, these are the people who don't fear God. Those who don't fear God should be afraid when Yahweh shows up. Now, we've seen that they don't fear him by chapter 2, verse 17. If you are to say, look at this evil thing. This is good. God loves this. That's not reflective of a weight around the things that God has said. That's not reflective of a seriousness um, about God's things. In fact, that's just like he's been, all of the words of Israel are very condemning here. Uh, throughout all of Malachi. You think back to chapter one, you know that, that they say the table of the Lord is defiled. It's fruit, it's food, contemptible. Oh, what a weariness. And they sneer at it. And now they said, where is justice anyways? We do what we want. Nothing happens. That must mean God loves it. Just a complete reversal of everything that he said, dismissing the law of Moses Um, which will come up at the end in chapter 4. So the target is on the disobedient ones, the ones who have no fear of God, which means they have no wisdom, no knowledge. In 6 and 7, the character of both God and the character of Israel are revealed. So 6 is a helpful explanation to Israel of why they have not been destroyed yet. Why is it that the God of justice seems to be absent? It says, the reason you haven't been eaten alive, 
the reason you haven't been licked up by fire is because I don't change. I am long-suffering, right? My character endures. So that's, he says, for I am the Lord. I don't change. That's why you're still here, sons of Jacob. But let's talk about you for a moment. You don't change either, right? From the days of your fathers, since before you've gone away from my ordinances, you have a habit of departure. You have a habit of disobedience. I happen to have a habit of long-suffering and mercy. That's why you're here. That's why you shouldn't then say, where's the God of justice? Because when he shows up, you won't be glad he's here. A dismissal of the long-suffering and mercy of God leads us to ingratitude and impatience and really not a true understanding of what is real. We're misled in every way when we forget who we were and who God is. So they have... uh, a habit of unchanging disobedience. God has a habit of unchanging mercy and thus closes this disputation against their words that are opposing um, the justice of God. This middle one, these three really build on each other. So this middle one says, okay, so if this is true, if I'm long-suffering, you're disobedient, then what should be the next step? And so we begin with a call to return. In the next disputation, return to me, I will return to you. That's familiar in the prophets. That's a call we've heard before. Uh, Do what is right, I will bless you. Come back and obey once again. An invitation to undo the very consistent activity of their fathers. Will they take it? No, why not? They're incapable of doing this. They're not obeyers. We're not obeyers by nature. But he says, return to me and I will return to you. You obey and there will be blessing, restoration, wholeness. How do we do that? How do you want us to return? He gives them an example first and then gives them an answer. So the example of a way that they are continuing in disobedience is this lack of tithing. Okay? They've di- they're disobeying by robbing God. He's required in worship that they give this portion back to him. As we see, you saw in chapter 1 and 2, the whole worship system's messed up anyways. They're bringing defiled lambs, broken ones, um, you know, ones that are sick. And, and he says, would you even give that to a human governor? No, you wouldn't give that to a human governor. Nobody likes this. And now another example of their broken worship. They're not giving anyways. Everything's falling into disrepair. Nobody has, uh, like the, the house of God is not adorned. It's not uh, taken care of. Um, and so he says, stop taking from me. Uh, you're robbing from me. You're robbing me. And yet you say, wait, 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 how are we robbing you? So there's sort of a, a stack of accusation and questions at the beginning of this disputation. So it gives a conclusion before the um, solution. So conclusion is verse nine. And that is, okay, because of who you are, how you've done, Right? There's not blessing, there's cursing. This is the uh, Deuteronomic code, right? So because of their disobedience, God is not blessing them. So they are cursed with a curse because disobedience. The whole nation is. So how would you undo disobedience? Man, that's a, that's a doozy, isn't it? <laughs> like that's, a, that's a real tough question. He's like, how about we try the opposite? How about we try obedience? How about we listen to God? Good idea. He says, bring the tithes into the storehouse. Right? O- obey the, the law that I laid out for you. Follow the covenant structure that I've set up. And, and if you do, you want to know what's going to happen? He's like, well, try it and find out. Test me. Watch, because as you do this, you will see difference. You will see that I will open for you the windows of heaven. I'll pour out for you a blessing. I'm going to rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. Says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, you put the food in my house like I called you to do. You test me in this and watch 
there will be a reversal of your fortunes. That's how he describes it. You will see the felt difference from cursing the fact that I do not receive your worship and they know it. You remember they're weeping and wailing and all this in the sacrificial system. They know God is not pleased, probably like Cain knew God was not pleased with his offering because it wasn't what God had asked him to bring. And so here he says, just look at yourselves. <laughs> this is why it's pretty evident why I'm upset. Um, and so obey, that's the solution. And then trust me with the blessing. Now in, uh, so middle of 10 is where that sort of the test or the blessing begins, middle of 10 down through the end of 12. And the whole thing revolves around agriculture. It's a, it's a blessing of harvest. So when he opens up the heavens, it's not like treasures falling out, right? It's like rains falling out. He actually blesses the land with rain, no drought. So there's going to be provision, uh, food. And uh, so much so that you're going to, there's going to be so much you don't have enough or there's so much you don't have enough room to store it. Like uh, it'll be an abundance. And then 11, he'll rebuke the devourer. Now who, as we think about agriculture, is the devourer? Probably locusts or some other bugs, the things that when God sends to Egypt, they devour the crops, right? If you, have, if you have a swarm, then everything's lost. So he says, I will keep them away. I'm going to give you the good. I'll keep away the bad. And uh, he's not going to destroy the fruit of your ground. And the, so take away the bad stuff, give some good stuff. And what's the equation end up with? Well, abundance, blessing, a huge harvest. Not, the vine will not fail. There will be a fruit in the field. And everyone else, ah, he is interested in what the other nations think of Israel. Remember that. This is an, an internationally focused God. And all the nations that would see Israel and be like, wow, God has blessed them. And isn't that the point of the test? Whether God blesses or curses them? Isn't that what, it, what sort of hangs in the balance? Their obedience and disobedience. Then there's blessing or cursing. Okay. That's the end of the second disputation. So the, the first one revolves around their words, uh, calling God unjust and calling what he calls evil good. The second one is an, another example of their malpractice. So previously they offered broken sacrifices. Here they don't offer something they ought to offer. So it's a sin of omission or yeah, omitting something they should, have, they should have been giving. So he says, try doing the opposite. And then the last disputation returns to their words. You see in verse 13, your words um, have been harsh against me. So first they wearied him with their words. Now they've been harsh against him. And they say, what, I, what, what do we say? And 14 and 15 is, once again, pretty, here's a dramatic quotation. You've said, it's useless to serve God. Why, like what profit is it that we even do this? Why would we keep obeying? Why have we walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed and those who do wickedness raised up or for, because, sorry, those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. So you can hear echoes from chapter two, verse 17 here. Uh, why is it that we are, are continuing to keep the ordinances? Well, we're not. We abandoned that a while ago. Why? Because from our evaluation, it did not seem to be working. We tried the, the, the morning before him and the humble service, just this lowly disposition before him. It didn't seem to work. And so now we're going to do the opposite. We'll lift up our heads. We'll be proud, arrogant, see what happens, test the waters a little bit, much like a child might do with a parent, just to see what happens if he disobeys. Nothing happened, no lightning struck, no angry God. And so let's just call wickedness good. In fact, we're gonna, those who do wickedness are raised up. They tempted God, went free. Echoes, where's the God of justice? It's interesting that they're holding both of these things in their hands because they say, where's the God of justice? Uh, wickedness seems to go free. And at the same time, they also are acknowledging that God's not accepting their sacrifice. 
So both of those being held side by side is kind of an interesting situation for someone to be in. Those who don't fear God make sense that there's a world of inconsistency, a world of sort of a web of lies, a, a, a web of wrong beliefs. Um, okay, so once again, so it's pointless to do what God has said. The wrapping up of the book introduces for uh, the first time, aside from Levi, this group of people, a remnant, you might say, who have a different perspective, who aren't like the majority of the people. And so, verse 16, in response to this accusation and these words of those who don't fear God, right, that uh, we're going to call the proud blessed, then those who feared the Lord, they got together and they spoke to one another. It doesn't say the content of their conversation, but maybe up like a quiet, like, yeah, we don't want to be like that. Like, this is not what we're about. We disagree with the people. We want to maintain covenant fidelity, whatever it might be. They have this sort of silent conversation in Malachi. And God hears the conversation. He says he listened to them and he heard them. And then really interestingly, in the middle of 16, so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. There's, as you can imagine, a lot of different conversation and ideas about what this book of remembrance is. It's written by the group of people who fear God. And it's written before God. But it's not only is it written by them, it's also written for them. So what's the content of this book? A couple ideas maybe. They perhaps are getting together to remember and rehearse the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that God made with Moses, perhaps the law of Moses. And they're, and they're writing down uh, reminders of the faithfulness of God, something like this. And they say, no, no, maybe, maybe they're hearing all of this um, talk of God not being just. And they say, no, let's, write, let's rewrite this, this story of the Exodus. Remember when God was just then? Remember when he looked at evil and he brought down all of the, the plagues and then he delivered the people through the Red Sea? That was just. Or, you know, let's remember Korah and the sons of Korah. Let's, like, let's tell some of these stories. Could be something like that. Um, it could be that they, it, it's basically a list of these people. That, that's like a, like a petition or um, something that they're signing up towards. So like, I will be a God-fearer. I will remember the covenant of Moses. And they're like, yes, me, me, me. And they I, uh, identify themselves as this group. Um, it could be that they're even remembering recently, writing down a history of that time. They're like, no, even in this, maybe some things we don't have written in this moment and this moment, God is faithful. He's still sending us his prophets. He's promised us that this temple will be better. Could be something like that. Could also be that they're just picking up the book that they were remembering. So like they pick up the law of Moses and it blesses them and encourages us. So there's a variety of things. We don't know specifically what this book is, but the the... The idea is that there is a counter perspective that exists inside the covenant community. A perspective of the smaller group of people who've gotten together and said, let's be faithful. Let's obey. Let's do what God has called us to do. And the God listens to them. Uh, those who you know, think on his things, who value the things of Yahweh, that fear the Lord. And God's response to them is what follows in 17 and 18, leading into a division between God's perspective, what he's going to do with the two groups that we have laid out before us, the, fe the ones who don't fear God, the ones who do fear God. What's he going to do with those? Well, the ones who fear God, in verse 17, he says, those are mine. Those are my people. And I will make them my special treasure on that day. On the day, uh, back to the beginning of chapter three, he's referring to the day of the Lord, the day that the Messiah shows up to the temple. On that day, he says, 
everyone will know these are my prized ones. They're my precious possession. And I will spare them because there's purity, because they fear him. So I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So as someone who's faithful, as a father would look at a faithful son, you say in that same way, like I'll be for you and with you. Um, and then again, there's this, now there's an idea of restoration, of fulfillment, of the, the covenant now being in a land where there's uh, a place for it to live and abide and grow and be fruitful. So then again, there will be discernment. There will be clarity. There will be understanding on all parts who the righteous and the wicked are. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Sometimes in the middle of all of this, you know, the priests who are the keepers of God's law, but they're also misleading and they are doing some sacrifices, but then there's that false God over there. Like what's going on? What's, uh, who's, who's who? When, when the, kind of like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, when you go to the place of righteousness and you find wickedness, when you go to the place of justice and you find injustice, that's confusing. It's frustrating. And so he says there will be clarity between these two categories of people, goats and sheep, wheat and tares. Right? That's a good way to begin thinking, righteous, wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve God. So let's talk about the end of both of those categories. Chapter 4, one, uh, verse 1 is what happens to the wicked that don't serve him, that don't fear him. He says, behold, the day is coming, coming burning like an oven. Here's another metaphor. It's hot, it's fiery. And all the proud, hmm, chapter 3, verse 15, the blessed ones? <laughs> no, the, the ones that Israel currently is calling blessed, but no, they're not blessed. He says, the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be burnt to a crisp. There will be stubble. There will be, they will be reduced to, to nothing. Um, the purifying fire will arrive. And the day is coming. Uh, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. So then there again, day to the, or reference to the day of the Lord. Um, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. So this whole metaphor of something burning completely up where it's absolutely gone, that's what happens even uh, in a purification situation, like all the impurities are absolutely removed. And so that's the end of the category of people who don't fear the Lord, Proverbs would call them the fools or um, the malicious, the mockers. So that's the end, their end. And then verses two and three, three talks about both of them a little bit, but two and three is what happens to those who fear the Lord. So to you who do fear my name, really beautiful picture here, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. So the metaphor is of the sun coming up in the morning, which happens after darkness. So the day is currently dark in Israel, but on the day of the Lord, and you might even say still, right? These, there's days that are still dark. And then there will come a day when the sun of righteousness will arise. He comes with healing in his wings. So who is the son of righteousness? This is the same promise of chapter 3, verse 1, that the Lord will arrive. Yahweh himself will come down. There's, uh, I know one other time at least in uh, the Psalms, Psalm 84, that the same metaphor is used. So it's a little bit of an unusual one. Light is not unusual, but that God is the son, Psalm 84, 11. Uh, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so God himself is the inheritance of those who fear him. And there's an acknowledgement of sort of brokenness or wounds that are present in the, even in the lives of those who fear him. And this picture of an, an eternal day rising and it's warm and he comes, the, the, the wings would be a metaphor of safety and security, a place of shelter. And with him, in him, under him, we are safe and healed and warm and bright. Like that's, all of those are kind of a part of the picture. This metaphor here. 
And then what's the result? It's a little bit of a funny picture. But then all these recently healed, restored, safe, joyful people who are walking in the fear of the Lord, they just burst out of the stalls like little calves, like jumping and bucking around and getting their energy out. And it's just the best day ever. You know, like that's kind of this very gleeful picture. Uh, They... Uh, They go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Lots of food to eat, the best of the best. Lots of uh, warm, sunny days. And then still still darkness for the wicked. Because these, the last picture is of the calves. So I'm not sure if it's actually in their joyful glee. The calves are doing this or it's just another metaphor. But there's then the trampling of the wicked and back to the burning. Right, that there's uh, there ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this. So kind of the, the, the picture here seems to be that God arrives, and this is, it's dark, it's difficult, but it's all, you see the tension here. So like, comes with fire, everything's burnt and toasted, and now the sun comes up, and there's healing and joy and new life coming from the ashes, and the little calves go out, and they're, sort of dancing on the ashes. So it's, like I said, there's tension there, right? The the darkness and the day, which we've seen consistently both present, two sides of the coin of the day of the Lord, judgment and restoration. Now, four through six is interesting. It's very much a conclusion to Malachi And there's a good possibility, there's definitely the possibility, that this would also be the final word to the book of the 12, to the whole scroll, sort of bringing a lot of ideas together. And so certainly you see uh, at the beginning the call backwards. So bringing things from the past, he says, remember the law of Moses. Fitting at the end of the prophets to call back to remembrance what God has said, that he is a God of covenant, that blessing comes out of obedience. Um, and so he, he calls them back to Moses, his servant. Uh, everything he commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. So recall back and remember, and then anticipation. So looking forward, and behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So Elijah the prophet, he's saying the same thing that he said in chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I'll send my messenger. But he's using, he's describing it a little bit different way. That could be one argument for this being sort of a conclusion of the whole uh, rather than just a conclusion of Malachi. Why wouldn't he just say my messenger? Why Elijah? Well, Elijah, in some ways, is, is, is like, he's like this superpower prophet because uh, he never died and he gets swept away into the, into the heavenlies. And so there's even perspectives that would say he still is out there. He still roams. He's the prophet who never, uh, who, who only got taken away, but never um, passed away. And so he's going to come back. There's that, uh, there's that perspective of Elijah. So it's like the prophet of prophets will return. So sort of a a summary example of all of the prophets is going to arrive before the day of the Lord. So a statement of the day of the Lord would also be very fitting to wrap up the prophets, particularly post-exile, the last words before before Christ. Um, And what is this prophet going to do? Wonderfully confusing way to end the book. (laughs) It's not, it's not like super apparent. So he turns the hearts of the fathers to the kids and the hearts of the kids to the fathers. So that, or lest, God, Yahweh, comes and strikes the earth with a curse. Okay? The last part's super helpful to give us the point of the whole verse, even if exactly what the verse is saying is not incredibly clear. So what... Elijah the prophet comes to do is to bring restoration, you might say to bring obedience, to bring repentance, so that there isn't a curse, so that 
there's blessing. And these are the two options. So that's helpful. Um, what is it about the hearts of the fathers to the kids and the hearts of the children to the fathers? A um, couple options, but I, I think probably the most, this point where I would be at, is that the discord in the families is a, is a good example. It's characteristic of the fact that the covenant is not being upheld and particularly that the covenant's not being passed generationally, which is very significant. So, can't help it, but this is part of where my head is right now. With Proverbs, what do you have? The whole setup is a dad teaching his child. It's a father passing the covenant to his son. And that's not happening. The people are not living in wisdom. They're not living in the fear of the Lord. And so one of the things that this prophet who is, I don't even know if I said it tonight. I think people know this, but it's who comes out to be John the Baptist. Um, what is he doing? He's functioning to bring, to call people to back to the covenant, to repentance. The day of the Lord is at hand. You know, he's right around the corner. And so uh, be you baptized in a baptism of, of obedience and repentance. And uh, so here, I think the, the fact that there's disunity, dysfunction between father and son is representative of the whole problem. That the community is no longer continuing to be generation after generation a community that upholds what God has to say. There's been, as we saw in the quotations of the people, who cares about that? Who cares about the covenant? Covenant what? Covenant doesn't work. God of justice? Yeah, I don't think so. Let's elevate evil instead. So I think in a, in a just sort of a broad way, we probably see that happening with generations. Like generations can change very quickly depending on what's passed down from one to another. Uh, and it's difficult to pass something to a generation, particularly instruction, isn't it? Because it's based in one's life and their experiences. And that's not yet the life and experience of the younger generations. And so it takes a wise young person as well to hear their father. So it's, it's both. It's not just all the fault of the dads, and that's what's uh, found in verse 6. He turns both back toward each other. So you have a wise father giving to his son, and you have a wise son receiving from his father, and so the covenant con um, community would continue, and curse is avoided. Now, uh, application thoughts. One of the biggest things here is that it's quite easy to just take this and to even maybe hear some things that or, uh, rehearse some things that you've heard before, such as the middle of chapter three, you know, hey, you bring the tithe into the storehouse, I'll give you the bless. Like, just wait and watch me bless. So we have to remember uh, the, the context of this entire situation, why God's saying what he's saying and what he's actually promising. So this isn't a prosperity message. This isn't so the seed of faith. You know, give 10 bucks, God will give you 100. That's not the idea that's present here at all. In fact, he's calling them back to Deuteronomy. He's calling them back to covenant obedience. And one of the big points in the Old Testament is that that's impossible, is that they won't do it. Or not that it's impossible, but that it would be impossible for a broken human to do it, for sure. So we need someone who has not been cursed in the way that we were cursed in order to live a life of obedience that we can't live. So we're not intended to look back at this and be like, well, if we do what Israel never did, then we'll be blessed like Israel never was. That would be ridiculous as New Testament saints to, to look back at this in that way. We just sort of like, we're reading, 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 bloop, jump over Jesus, and then we're back to us. You're like, well, that's kind of the entire point of everything. So we would do well to be grateful uh, that Jesus' own obedience was full, that his own offering was pure, that he brought the tithes into the storehouse, and he is blessed. And in him, we are also, as the New Covenant community, quite blessed, richly blessed. So 
Let's just not, you know, do the little hop, skip, and a jump over Messiah um, as the supremely significant one in chapters 3 and 4. Uh, that's one thing. Second thing is to, that, so, so how are we then kind of like, or how could we be like Israel? Um, and we did this in the last two weeks, that it would be easy to take just sort of uh, shots at other people who elevate very evil things and call them good. So we may not do that. Um, but like we heard in Peter, we would be wise to remember to be very patient with the promises of God. Because for us to be impatient with the promises of God is for us to misunderstand who we are. Like It's not the place of a person living in the time that God made to be impatient with their maker. It doesn't, it doesn't follow if we hear everything that he's truly said. It would also, we'd also do well to remember chapter 3, verse 6, that even the reason we were not consumed, the reason that today wickedness is not just immediately obliterated, is because of the character of our God. And we were blessed by his long-suffering, so we ought not curse his long-suffering, Right? So we know that his purpose in doing so, as he states, is for salvation. It's toward grace that he is long-suffering. And we took a big bite of that. So we would be very grateful that other people might, may get to as well. So patience as it concerns the promises of God. The importance of moving from... Uh, as New Testament saints, of moving from the reception of the tremendous gifts of being associated with Christ toward a life that looks like him. That's important. So we're, we're in Christ. We saw this in Colossians. We're in Christ. Therefore, it would be consistent for us to seek to live like Christ. So we see his virtues and we pattern his virtues um, rather than, you know, having this autonomous evaluation of what would be good, what would not be good. Let's just accept what Christ has said as good and emulate it and live it out. Um, so that's kind of the second disputation. Let's, let's be obedient. Let's be pure. Let's put off the old and put on the new. Um, then uh, I think at the end, really the uh, potential emphasis on the word in this book that was written, certainly the importance of remembering, venerating what God has said, valuing the text, the law of Moses, as he said, um, and what was going to come from their perspective is something we've already received. Elijah the prophet, John the Baptist, the, the coming or the initiation in some way of the, of the great and terrible day of the Lord or the arrival of Jesus is coming into the temple. Um, and so that has begun to take place. And so we would um, do well to remember that God has spoken of these things and he's going to keep his word. Um, and so keeping faithful to the promises of God, even when we can't see everything that he's doing. So those are a few um, thoughts of application from each section. But before we conclude, Malachi, I want to open it up opportunities to maybe ask a specific question about this text. I know we went a little bit quicker, so a little bit less uh, depth perhaps, but uh, questions on that um, before we close and move to Joel next week. Uh -huh. And he's the one who's being crucified, and he was calling uh, Eli, Eli, and Sabacht, or whatever it was. He said he was calling him Elijah. And it kind of looks like in um, this, it's hard to say, but it's like he's going to come right before the day of judgment. Mm -hmm. parts together, the fathers, parts of the children, vice versa. Okay. The Jews are still looking for Elijah Right. Right. They're looking for both because they missed both.
So what's the uh, confusion of that? Because you uh, uh, identified as well John the Baptist as this character, this prophesied person. So what's the confusion in that connection? Because you said it's a mystery, but then also very clearly unveiled the mystery. So I'm maybe misunderstanding. Uh, my understanding is that this would be fulfilled in John the Baptist. So there's, there's um, in the Gospels, and I'd have to look up the exact reference. I don't have it off the top of my head. But he's both identified, he says, he's not Elijah. And then he says, and he is Elijah. Is that kind of what you're referring to? The... Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. There is, I was just thinking, because we've got to, as mentioned this, there's a passage in Matthew, which is interestingly significant. It's the first yep. order, and it flows straight from Malachi. Yeah. Um, and just, there was one thing I was going to, the Jews wrongfully thought Jesus was calling for Elijah. But right. That wasn't accurate. But, but because Matthew, the beginning of the words sound the same. Yeah. Matthew 3, uh, this is Jesus' baptism, and this is John. Verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to have children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut out and thrown in the fire. I baptize you with water of repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He settled them not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And there are three allusions there that are direct allusions to Malachi. Mm -hmm. The first one, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It says in Malachi that... The, when the messenger comes, um, that the, the, the forerunner, um, that they'll be destroyed even where there's no root of the tree. Right. Right. Like so you say, the axe. Then John says the axe is here, and then the fire. He comes with the baptizing with fire. That's reference. And then the, they will be like chaff. Is a reference to when he said they'll be like chaff. So since John is the Holy Spirit. So specifically connects Matthew John's words with what it said will happen when the Elijah comes, when the forerunner comes, the messenger comes. Most, if not all, theologians I've read take the fulfillment being here that this is the forerunner's message of judgment, fire, chaff, axe to the tree, and that it begins. Um, the events of the Messiah. In other words, it's not that he has to come twice, but it's like what Jesus said when he says, these are the last days. <laughs> like, the last days, the fulfillment of the coming of the day of the Lord begins with the entrance of the Messiah and will conclude at the great white throne judgment. Is that why they still set a place for Elijah to pass over? They still mm -hmm. set a place because their scripture ends in Malachi. Yeah. So yes. That's yes. Yeah. Yes. But what I'm suggesting is that rather than, and I think it's what you were saying, Eric, rather than thinking, um, well, he came, but he didn't do everything, right? So is he going to come again? No, it's like the day of the Lord in this sense is like. Broad. Yeah, the opening yeah. day of the Lord began with John the Baptist. And the conclusion of it will be the, fi the finish of the eschaton. And there's a lot of things happening in between, like the death of Christ, the church, you know. But it's not like a, it's like a, a continuation rather than a separate event. So John the Baptist, and that's what Jesus said, he is Elijah. Because Cain gave the message. That's what I, how I understand yeah. yeah, there's been speculation through Revelation that the two olive branches that come down are Moses and Elijah. Right. Two prophets. Right. So 
not unlike transfiguration, right? But I, so I don't think there's any question, though, that, that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. Like, that's explicitly said in the Gospels. Jesus says that. So I was, as you were chatting, I was finding the reference. So Matthew 11, um, Jesus is asking the multitudes about John. He's like, well, what were you going out there to see? Oh, a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. And, and he goes on, there's, he states it again exactly in verse 14. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there, I don't think there's any question on the table that that's who Malachi is talking about. I think the question is, is he the, fulfill, like, the complete fulfillment of the prophecy? And my understanding is the answer is yes. Sounds like your understanding is the answer is yes too. That we're not currently waiting for another Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. Like he was that's done. The, the way is prepared. That's very, because at the beginning of Matthew 2, when the angel's talking to Zechariah and describing who, he's gonna, who his son is going to be, he uses all of the quotations, prophecies about John the Baptist too. Really cool. Malachi, the, the prophet presents the positive, the, the negative mm-hmm. judgment, the positive, the caps. Yeah. And then ends with the negative. Yeah. And I think that I think one could make a case that what we are experiencing now, the church, the growth of the church, the evangelism, is um, being is the fulfillment of the success he's describing. Like we are the righteous ones that. Rejoice like calves coming out of the stall when we receive the gospel. And yet, we have not yet trampled on the chaff, the ashes, because we're still waiting for him in his brightness, the return, mm-hmm. to finish the job. So I think there's, therein lies the very common already not yet. Yeah. So is the day of the Lord here? Yes. No. Are, are, has the son of righteousness risen with healing in his wings? Yes. No. <laughs> like, it, it, it's all, is, it, are the powers of darkness vanquished? Yes. Colossians? No. Like, it, it is the, the present eschatology, the realized eschatology, um, <laughs> claiming the promise of God and looking to the cross as, or even the incarnation and the cross and resurrection as the accomplishment of it. Um, so, yeah, it's today, these last days, these last 2,000 years, this is just like, this is one moment. This is the breath in between the resurrection and his return. Big breath for us, but... Right, and it's not, a, right, yeah, beyond assume, like, it's, it's, it's him. He's, it's stated explicitly, right? Yeah, so look for him, which is what everyone should be looking for, is for the messenger next. Now, you could argue that, like, that they, uh, and this is the dawn of the New Testament. I mean, this is what happens. It's one of the reasons that um, it's majored upon at the beginning of some of the Gospels. Uh, So, that John is majored upon. Um, Okay, does that answer that generally? Any other thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah. So I'm going to go Malachi, Romans. Romans. Malachi, yeah, Romans 16, 20. Mm-hmm. Malachi, let's see, 4, 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, a very dominant image. I mean, it goes back to the first picture of 
complete dominion. I mean, you got to go back to Genesis 3, right? That the serpent's head is crushed under the heel of Jesus, and there we are in him, the body of Christ, dominion. It's a good note to end on. Okay, that sends the beginning of our study of Malachi, man. There's a, there's it's a beautiful book. So next week um, we'll start Joel, um, do an overview of the book of Joel. Let's pray.